0: Today, I love, I love this time that we have to just talk with each other, spend time together. I was, I was thinking this morning, getting ready for church, how thankful I am for this church community, and uh, you know, I feel like you know we've been here three months now, and over the last three months I just feel more and more at home uh, with this church, that so this church is truly my church family now. Um, it is the highlight of my week every week to see, uh, to be here and to worship with you. Because when we worship, we're not just hanging out. We're not just making relationships around uh, shared interests. We're coming together to worship one God and King. It's a special. It's a special thing that we do today. Sorry for the echo. They're working it out. They're working it out. (laughs) I think so. I think they're. Oh, there we go. Awesome. Okay. So for the last three months, we've been in the books of First and Second Thessalonians, and we've been walking verse by verse through those books. Um, And it's been really rich for me to spend the time looking into those books. And I want to encourage you with the exact same thing that I encouraged you guys with when we finished the book of 1 Thessalonians. And that is, over the last three months, we should have gotten a pretty good picture of what happens in those books. And so I've had conversations with people over the last number of years um, that have gone something like this. I want to read the Bible, but I don't know where to start want to read the Bible, but I don't know where to start. And honestly, I, I understand that sentiment. The Bible's a big book full of confusing names and places, and it can be really intimidating. But what I want to encourage you with today is that if you've been with us for the last three months, walking verse by verse through these, these two short books, I think that you've got the context and the understanding to read the books of First and Second Thessalonians on your own and to be fed by it, enriched by it. It's the Word of God, and I promise you, if you go and you spend the time to read through these two books this week, you're going to be blessed in the process, and you're going to meet God in a new way there. So I encourage you to do that. Today is the week before Thanksgiving, and we're going to begin today the shift from Thessalonians to our Christmas series, to to Advent. And today, I'm saying we're beginning the shift, because today we're not going to get into the Christmas story but rather we're going to look at the story behind the story. Because Matthew, at the beginning of the New Testament, where we read the Christmas story, is halfway through the grand story that God has written for all of us. This story begins in the book of Genesis at the very beginning of the Bible, telling a story about how this anointed one is coming. In Hebrew, the word Mashiach, meaning Messiah. In the New Testament, that word is translated Christos, meaning Christ, From the beginning of the Bible to the very end, every single passage points to this one event in the middle with the birth, life, and death of Jesus Christ. And so today, before we dive into the Christmas story and and dig into that and worship through that, what we're going to do today is going to look at the story behind the story. And so today is story time. (laughs) I thought about bringing a bowl of popcorn and putting it on all of your tables. Um, I encourage you most weeks to follow along in your own Bibles. And if you can, I encourage you, but we're gonna be flipping a lot today. Um, So we're gonna have the passages up here on the screen. So if you'd rather just sit back, listen to the story and follow along on the screen, I would encourage you to do so. So let's pray, prepare our hearts for this um, and worship God together through looking at this amazing promise. Heavenly Father, we, uh, we are your people. Uh, and we, we've become your people uh, because of what you've done in sending your Son, the Messiah, the Christ, who opened a way for us to be your people, to be adopted into your family, Lord, to be saved and unified with Jesus Christ. It's amazing. It's amazing, Jesus. And we come to the Christmas uh, season every year remembering this amazing story of how you came in the flesh, Lord. And we miss, uh, in the midst of all the all the other joyful, beautiful things of the season, how amazing this truly is. How this isn't just a gift we received, but it was a gift that we were waiting for and expecting since the beginning of human history. Lord, I pray that today, as we look into your Word, we would be captivated that. By the reality that we waited for ages and generations for this messiah to come and we don't have to wait anymore that jesus christ came to bear our sins to die in our place to give us everlasting life and that he rose again that we who are united with him can be with him for eternity lord the christmas story comes down to this your son came because he loved us and he came to die. So I pray that we would come to celebrate that today in this whole Christmas season, Lord. Orient our hearts to the truth of, this, of who this Messiah is. And we pray this, Lord, in your son Jesus' name. Amen. So in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He created the sky and the land, the sea, He put the fish in the sea, the birds in the air, animals, plants on the ground. He put the sun and the stars and the moon in the sky. And as he was creating the whole world, he called every single thing good. The Hebrews have a word for this type of good. It's shalom. Shalom doesn't mean just peace. Shalom means that everything is as it's supposed to be. Shalom is, in other words, just not your kids just not fighting. Shalom is your kids blessing each other and cleaning each other's rooms because they want to. That's the sh- shalom, this everything perfect, everything the way it's supposed to be. And God created the world in this way. And he created man and female, and he put them in the world to run it. And this is what he tells us about that in Genesis two fifteen through 17. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but... Of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. In this world of perfection, of perfect shalom, God gave them complete liberty to eat anything they want to live in this perfect paradise. And he gave them this one restriction. This one tree, do not eat of it. And if you know the story, it only takes 14 verses for them to ruin that because they meet the serpent, and they meet who is uh, the incarnation of Satan in that moment. And Satan tells them a different story. Satan tells them that if they eat of this tree, if they eat of this fruit, uh, they'll be wise and they'll be like God. And so man and woman in their arrogance, they decide to defy the command of God and do what they want instead and they eat of the fruit. And in that moment, the perfect peace of the garden, the shalom of the pre-fall creation was destroyed. Sin and death entered into the world. And since that moment, every single person who has ever been born has ended his life in death. That's what happened at the fall. And we read a really interesting thing, that God goes to the man and the woman. In this moment, he says to them that the woman, because of the judgment, because of what they did, the woman is going to have increased pain in childbirth. The man is going to have increased labor and pain in his work. There's going to be a power struggle between the man and the woman. And then we see something really interesting. Because God turns to the serpent then, and he pronounces a judgment upon him. And this is what we read in chapter 3. Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat in the days of all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. What we see in this passage, three chapters into the entire Bible, we see the first picture of the way that God is going to restore this mess. We see the first picture of how God is going to send an offspring of Eve, a man, to come and destroy the offspring of the serpent, Satan. Someday there's going to be an epic battle that this man is going to come and crush the head of the snake, and the snake is going to strike this man's heel. He's going to die to defeat death and sin, right here from chapter 3. And we don't know exactly how this is going to happen yet. In this passage, all we know is that God has a plan, and the outcome of this battle has been already decided. But right now, they're waiting. Right now, they have to wait. And so we wait for the offspring of Eve who will crush Satan's head. But the generations pass, and time goes on. Uh, they have Cain uh, Cain and Abel, and they, they end up killing one another, or Cain kills Abel. And then time goes on, the Tower of Babel. Uh, time goes on, we see Noah and the Ark, and then ultimately we meet this man named Abraham. And Abraham is key to the entire biblical history because Abraham is the father of the Jewish nation. Uh, He was living in a town called Ur. It's the capital city of Sumeria. And he was there, and he was not a worshiper of Yahweh at this time. Rather, Abraham was there, and he was a polytheist. Uh, He was a pagan. But God decides to choose Abraham to use him as a tool to bring blessings to the nation. He reveals himself to Abraham. And Abraham becomes a worshiper of the one true God. And this is what God says to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. and I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. He continues in Genesis 17. I will make you exceedingly fruitful and I will make you into nations and kings kings shall come from you and I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout your generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. So what we see in these passages is that God is intending to use Abraham as a tool to bring blessings to the nations. But not just Abraham, he's planning to use his offspring, his family, to bring blessings to the nations. And the interesting thing about this passage is that in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul looks back and he talks about this passage. In in the book of Galatians uh, chapter 3, he looks back and in talking about this passage, he says, the promises that were made to Abraham and to his offspring, uh, it does not say into offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Jesus Christ. Paul shows us clearly in this passage that God intends in this promise to bring blessings to the entire world through one man, one offspring, and that this man Uh, the covenant will be ultimately fulfilled in him. The blessings of the nations will be ultimately brought through this one single person. But he hasn't come yet. And so at that point, they had to wait. They had to wait for the offspring of Eve who would crush Satan's head. They had to wait for the offspring of Abraham who would bring blessings to the nations. And so they wait and time passes. Abraham has a son named Isaac. Isaac has a son named Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons. And the next thing that we want to zero in on is in the book of Genesis chapter 49 where uh, Jacob's on his deathbed and as he's on his deathbed he's bringing each and every single one of his 12 sons in front of him and he's going to put a blessing, a prophecy, onto each and every single one of his sons. And by the time he gets to Judah, this is the prophecy that he speaks to him in Genesis 49 verses 8 through 12. He says to him, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. What he's saying is that Judah will be the highest of all of his brothers. And he goes on in verse 9. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and a lioness. Who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. So what he's saying is it's not just his brothers that will be obedient to him, but that he will be a king, he will have a scepter, and his rule will not come to an end, and that the people shall be obedient to him, to his kingship. He goes on in verse 11, binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. And that's strange ima- imagery, but if we're going to very simply boil it down, this is what it's saying. In a world where you can tie your donkey to a grapevine, what he's saying is that there is such abundance of grapes, such abundance of fruit, that you can even tie your donkey to Uh, your choice vine, your best vine, because it doesn't even matter to you if the donkey eats it. It's the same thing with washing your clothes in wine in this passage. What he's saying is there's such abundance of wine that there's just as much wine as water in the land. The picture of the world that he's creating in this passage is he's painting a picture of this pre-fall extravagance, the pre-fall perfection of the world. And what Judah is saying, or what um, Jacob is saying to Judah is that through the reign of Judah's tribe will come abundant restoration of the garden, an abundant restoration of the prefall perfection of the world, that through Judah God will bring restoration from the fall. And so they wait. The offspring, they wait for the offspring of Eve, who will crush the head of the serpent. They wait for the offspring of Abraham who will bring blessings to the nations. And now they wait for the offspring of Judah, who will bring a kingdom over all peoples and restore the extravagance of the garden. But time passes by, and they wait more. The Israelite nation go into exile. They're there for 400 years. God uses Moses to deliver them out of exile. He brings them across the Red Sea into the wilderness for 40 years. Finally, he brings them into the promised land. And the Israelite people turn, they worship the Baals and the Ashtoreths, the foreign gods, and they turn away from their God. They find themselves in war with other nations, and God raises up men. He calls judges to deliver them from the mess that they get themselves in. Finally, the people, because of their hardness of heart, they turn to Samuel, their prophet, and they say, Give us a king. We want a king like the other nations. In so doing, they're saying, God isn't our king. We want a human king. And so he gives them what they want. And he gives them a man named Saul. Saul is their king, their first king, but he's not from the tribe of Judah. He's from the tribe of Benjamin. And that's not the way that it was supposed to be. And so ultimately, Saul's reign comes to an end, and God raises up a man named David. David is the first king in Israel from the tribe of Judah. And so if you're an Israelite in that day, what are you thinking? Is this the snake crusher? Is this the world blesser? Is this the one who's going to restore the garden to us? Because this man is a descendant of Eve, a descendant of Abraham, a descendant of Judah. Who is this man? But it doesn't take very long into the story of David to realize that he is not the snake crusher. He is not the nation blesser. He is not the one that they have been waiting for. But God does have a plan for David. God has a very important plan for David. And we see that plan in 2nd Samuel verse or chapter 7. Let me read that. He says, "When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever." So God makes a covenant to David. He says, I'm going to establish your royal line. And your offspring will be on the, have an everlasting kingdom, will be on the throne forever. And so David waits for this day. The nation waits for this day. And for years and years, the offspring of David, the children of David, are on the throne of Israel. But the nation divides because of their sin. They go after foreign gods. They go after power and wealth and sex rather than living the way that God commanded them to live in the law that he gave to Moses. We see that throughout Israel's history, king after king after king fails to live up to the standard that God expects of the kings of Israel. And so still, they wait. The northern kingdom is sent off to Assyria, the southern kingdom is sent off to Babylon, and it seems like all hope is lost. And so they wait for the offspring of Eve who will crush Satan's head, for the offspring of Abraham who will bring blessings to the nations, for the offspring of Judah who will bring a kingdom over all peoples and restore the extravagance of garden, and they wait for the offspring of David who will establish this everlasting kingdom. So who is this snake crusher of Eve? Who is this nation blesser from Abraham, this world restorer from Judah, this everlasting ruler from David? They keep waiting for this guy. And you'd have to think, man, God, we're in exile. Half the nation's been destroyed. Now would be a pretty good time to send this guy. And it would be easy, you would think, in this time, to think, where the heck did you, where are you? And God keeps sending these men, these men called prophets, to not let the nation of Israel believe that God has forgotten about them, to remind them, you have a God, and he is in heaven, and he is good to remind them there is a man coming and they point forward to this guy and to remind them you have been given this covenant live into this and the prophets continually point the people forward point them forward to this coming restore and we see this over and over in the prophets daniel chapter 7 he talks of a man called the son of man who comes riding on the clouds and this is what he says about him to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Through the book of Malachi in chapter 3, he tells of a man who would come to precede this coming Messiah and help make straight the way of the Lord. Does that sound familiar? In the book of Micah, chapter 5, it tells of a man who would be born in Bethlehem. Isaiah, chapter 7, tells of a man who would be born of a virgin. Zechariah, chapter 9, tells of one man who comes riding on a donkey. Chapter 11, sold for 30 pieces of silver. Chapter 12, who would be pierced. They won't let Israel forget that a man is coming. And the most beautiful picture that we have of this coming Messiah, we find in the book of Isaiah, chapter 53. A man who we call the suffering servant who takes away the sins of the world. We read in 53, verses 4 through 6 Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed. For our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned, every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on not us, but him, the iniquity of us all. This suffering servant is a man who was killed, who was pierced for our transgression, for our evil for our rebellion and these wounds bring us restoration does that sound like anyone we know so israel continues to wait for this this man the offspring of eve who would crush satan's head the offspring of abraham who would bring blessings to the nations The offspring of Judah who would bring a kingdom over all peoples and restore the extravagance of the garden. The offspring of David who would establish an everlasting kingdom. And now this suffering servant who would take away the sins of the world. But still, time passes. And they wait. And they wait. The New Testament comes to the end and we see no snake crusher. We see no nation blesser, world restorer, everlasting ruler, suffering servant. The New Testament comes to the end, and honestly, where is he? We've been waiting since the beginning of time. Where is this man we have been waiting for? And in the intervening years after the Old Testament, before the New Testament comes, nation after nation after nation come and crush the Israelite people. And when we open up the book of Matthew, we find that they are being ruled by the Roman Empire. They are not in a good situation. Until all of a sudden... A virgin is found to be pregnant, Isaiah 7. And she travels to a town of Bethlehem, Micah 2. And a baby was born in a barn who was the descendant of Eve, of Abraham, of Judah, and of David. And as we go throughout the Gospels, we read the life of this man named Jesus Christ, the man about whom people whisper, could this be the Christ? Could this be the one that we've been waiting for? The one who stands up in the temple one day, takes the scroll of Isaiah, reads a prophecy about this coming Messiah, and then sits down and has the gall to say, today this is fulfilled in your hearing. The man who comes to proclaim, I am the one that you've been waiting for. And as we watch his life, as we read about this life, we come to see and to recognize that Jesus is the offspring of Eve, who was bruised on his heel but crushed the head of Satan when he died on the cross. Jesus was the offspring of Abraham, who brought the blessings of salvation to all nations. Jesus is the offspring of Judah, who brought the kingdom of God, healing, driving out demons. Jesus is the offspring of David, who now sits on the throne forever. And Jesus is the suffering servant who is pierced for our transgressions, and by whose wounds we have been healed. Jesus is the one that we have been waiting for from the beginning of creation until now. And the waiting is over. When we think about this story, we've been waiting our entire lives for this man to come, and he has come. What are we waiting for? The message I want to zero in on today is that in this Christmas season, what we do is we celebrate the fact that the wait is over. He's the one we've been waiting for, the one who fulfills every single prophecy of the Old Testament. He has come to establish his kingdom when he came to preach the good news of the kingdom. And And he defeated sins and took away the sins of the world when he died on the cross, bearing our sin and paying for our guilt. And so if he's your Lord, I'm I'm excited this Christmas to worship our king together. (laughs) I'm excited that we as a family can come together to celebrate that the wait is over. And if he's not your Lord, if you haven't yet submitted your life to this king, to Jesus Christ, this Messiah, this Christ, don't wait anymore. The Messiah has come. God himself came in the form of man, bore our sins on his shoulders, died in our place so that our sins would be wiped away, making us free, making us white as snow. And if you put your trust in him, he has paid for your sins on the cross. He died in your place and he rose again. And if you have trusted him, put your faith in him, then when you die, you will be raised with him to eternal life as well. This is the truth we celebrate in Christmas. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, this truth is the truth that we think about every single week. The fact that your son was the sacrifice that came and died in our place to give us life, Lord, that we now live a life for this son, to honor him. (laughs) He's our Lord, meaning that he is the one who has control over our lives, the way we live. And so, Father, I pray that this Christmas season, as we think about the story of what happened in Bethlehem, Lord, when your son came into the world, we wouldn't forget the story behind the story. The story of the years and years and years of waiting for this baby to come. I pray, Lord, that that would do nothing but amplify our worship when we celebrate the reality that he has come. And Father, I just pray that if if anyone here has not yet made that decision, Lord, to follow Jesus Christ, to make him their Lord, I pray that they wouldn't wait anymore. That you would work in their hearts right now to help them see they don't have to wait, that the gift has come if they accept the gift of Jesus Christ's death on the cross in their place. And pray, Lord, that we would be a people who live every day a life um, that gives glory to you for who you are and what you've done. We pray all this, Lord, in Jesus' holy name. Amen.